Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. One hundred two point three FM, Los Angeles. One hundred two point three FM, Riverside. And one hundred five AM, Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, and uh, we're in the first week of twenty-four for the show. And uh, co-hosting today, Mr. Gavin Stone. Hello, how are you? I'm well. I'm delicious. They say. That's what they, <laughs> they tell me. I decide, you know, I haven't tasted myself, so I don't know. Oh, oh that's well. gross. You're gross. So early. So <laughs> early. Just start it off. Yeah. yeah, you always start that nasty stuff like that. So New, New Year's, what was going on with you? What did you do for Christmas, New Year's? Did you go out and uh, spy on people? or? No, no, I was well-behaved. Uh, family night at home. Oh, that's it? I know. Yeah, boring this year, huh? I thought you were like wild spy and... You did all these things, I thought you'd be like, you know, in Russia somewhere. A few, a few years ago, maybe, unfortunately, now, no, a full-time dad and, and kind of, you know, uh, there's uh, parts of the body that don't work as good as they used to, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not spending as much time in the field. Well, and that'll be another show we're going to talk about. <laughs> Gavin's body parts that don't work. <laughs> Mainly the brain. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you know, that's a whole episode in itself. Well, today we are, we, um, let's see, we've got a guest that is in the same sort of field or was in the same field as you were. So it's kind of a relation there. And I know that his book that came out, uh, let's see, September 25th in 23 is called Dead Hand. So let's bring on the guest, James uh, Stay School. Thank you very much for being here. Well, good evening, I guess it will be. Um, it's great to be here and great to be uh, in the first week of 2024, the first presentation of 2024. So thanks for uh, having me on. No, it's a pleasure. Now, I understand that you've got quite a 
good history with bacon. So tell us about bacon. I was going to say that's all made up, but it's not. Um, I have, <laughs> my, my father was actually a stockyard man, a cattle buyer. He brought home a lot of bacon. Uh, and I can say that truthfully because we lived in Omaha and that was the biggest stockyard in the world and he dealt heavily in, in meat, meat futures and um, we, we had direct access to all the big packing plants. So uh, our freezer was always full because dad brought home the bacon. So I enjoy bacon. Yeah, the smell of bacon. You know, I grow it, but I don't, I can't find the seeds. So. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that terrible? What the yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, um, so you've got quite the history in, um, I guess, military and intelligence, right? Central Intelligence Agency, U.S. Armed Special Forces and stuff like that. I always wonder this, like, when, so when you were a kid, is that sort of where you wanted to go as a kid? Were you totally inspired by the military and, and CIA and you wanted to go that way? Well, my my father was military in World War II and uh, during Korea, and then spent most of the rest of his career in um, the Army Reserves while while he was doing his civilian work. Um, but uh, I wanted to get out of Dodge. Uh, although we were living in Omaha, I wanted to get out of Dodge, and that meant something that was a little bit more adventurous, so I went from uh, wanting to be a forest ranger to marine archaeologist, uh, one-time biology, um, and then my dad went off on one of his Army Reserve camps and brought home a brochure that explained all about the Green Berets, the U.S. Army Special Forces. And that sort of did it for me, and um, this was even before the John Wayne film. Um, so I uh, I got committed fairly early on, and I went to I went to the university, uh, spent a year there, and then decided ah, this isn't quite what I wanted to do. So I enlisted. Was it was it? Did it turn out how you thought it would be? Like with life with that, with the agencies and stuff, was it all like John Wayne? Uh, no, <laughs> and it's not like James Bond either. Uh, in fact, it's uh, it's more like a combination of um, uh, Phil Silver and uh, yes, yeah, see, let's see who would know. Um, it would be our man in uh, our man in Havana, uh, the uh, Graham Greene book. Um, it's a lot of not what you expect, and you know there are moments of excitement. But mm -hmm. very brief. A, a lot of it's just interminable boredom. Yeah, and I'm old enough to remember Phil Silvers. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think the public gets wrong about the kind of work you did in both agencies, both the force and CIA? What do you think the public in general is is getting wrong about agency workers? Well, I, I don't think it's just the agency. I think it's the military, too. The, uh, if I start with Special Forces, uh, the U.S. Army as a whole, what we used to call the Green Army, as opposed to us, which were sort of in the shadows, um, did not like us because we tended to be kind of freeform and do the things that we wanted to do, not uh, not the way the Army really wanted to. If you wanted a, a unit to be looking good on the drill field, you did not call Special Forces. 
they couldn't keep in step, uh, they couldn't follow orders, uh, yeah, anyway. And it's kind of the same way with the CIA. Um, actually, the civilian world, I think, believes that what they see on the screen is what really happens in the world. And if you talk to most CIA officers and ask them if they've ever fired a gun, uh, other than on the, on the range, they'll tell you no. Uh, but if you watch all the TV programs, damn, um, all these guys are expert shots and can run and shoot people in the head at 300 meters with a with a pistol that usually can't hit anything beyond 25. So yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. Oh, geez, you mean it's not like Queen Latifah and the Equalizer? She walks in the room and five minutes later, all ten guys are dead, and she walks out without a scratch. Well, she might be able to do that, but I can. <laughs> So tell us, what did you think of British intelligence? <laughs> are you speaking about the nation, or are you talking about uh, the SIS and MI5? Uh, MI5, what do you think of uh... Actually, I, did, I didn't deal a whole lot with MI5. I did with the other folks. And they're just as bad. I mean, they're just as good as we are. <laughs> Yeah, we, yeah uh, we we have our foibles. Uh, you know, we I think they were better in the restaurants uh, because they knew what wine to order, and we're not so good at that. But um, out in the field, they're good and they're bad, uh, and so are we. <laughs> That's it. We we can screw up just as good as you. We just do it with an accent. Yeah, yeah. Gavin, <laughs> I really appreciate that. You know that that sense of competition. Yeah, we can we can. That word I'm not supposed to say, we can screw that up just as well as you can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you, you're better at ordering the bacon, that's all. <laughs> they can I, order do no bacon. I do yeah. know bacon. I do know bacon. And pork belly. <laughs> yeah. What got you into writing about that sort of situation? Because I see that your newest book coming out this year and some of your previous ones here. It's a lot about uh, the situation in the world, and, and it, of course there's a lot of you know, secret intelligence and stuff that's used in this area. What made you go into writing this sort of fiction? Well, I've, um, it's, it was kind of a, I have to say it was kind of a commingling of interests. Um, I started reading um, military history and then spy history, spy fiction, military fiction, not so much. But uh, at a very young age, and I was also interested in writing. Um, I, I wouldn't say I wanted to be like John Le Carre or, or uh, any of those folks, but I did have an interest in writing, and I did want to tell a story. So I, I enjoy telling stories. I'm not so good talking. You know, I couldn't get up on the stage and tell a story for the life of me. My brother can, but I can so while I was in the Army, actually, I started writing down some notes, some short stories. Um, and when it came for me to start my third career, actually, yeah, that's my third career, I started doing some conflict archaeology, which is basically going out looking at war and how it affects the world of old conflicts. And I was writing a history of uh, Germany in Africa during World War One, And there were a lot of side stories that didn't come into my book, so I was interested in telling them as fiction, because then you can make up the, um, the personal 
stories of the people that were involved in it. Uh, um, and one thing led to another. Uh, I also had a bad experience with the Pentagon. Anytime I write something, I have to get it cleared by the Pentagon and the CIA. Um, that's, that's the agreement you sign when you sign on. Um, so it's easier to tell those stories than fiction. And in some cases, it's a bit more fun. Um, and then I can make stuff up. Um, my current one, Dead Hand, projects things out into the future. Actually, we're almost on top of it now. It was, it's, um, it's actually supposed to be happening in 2024, which if I, if I check my calendar, I think we're there right now. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, so I went from military history writing to fiction, and I'm sort of going back and forth. How do you choose the themes? Like, what made you choose? Like, in the, in the latest book, Dead Hand, We've got Russia winning the war over Ukraine and eyeing the Baltics. So what made you choose that particular area and subject? I would say it's because I'm prescient, but uh, no. Uh, I think it's because I see a story, um, and I want to I wanna try to put it down on paper and tell people about it. Um, Dead Hand is all about what could happen and the way I see it, and it's a possibility. So I try to make it more interesting by integrating uh, my knowledge about special operations and the intelligence world, and, and you're off and running right there. And, and your main, you know, your character here is Joshua Devlin. Um, who is Joshua Devlin? How did you come up with him? Well, Joshua Devlin is actually, that's not his... That's not the name he was brought up with. Uh, he, he exists in some of my previous books, but because of a series of unfortunate events, uh, he is now in what the agency calls their witness protection program. He's had to change his name. Um, but he's one of the few agents they have that does not speak Pashto or Arabic but speaks a language that can be useful in Europe. Uh, so he gets called in because this is an Eastern European thing. He's an older guy, and he is linked up with another CIA officer who is also an older guy. Both of them have been called back for service because the uh, man that Joshua is uh, linked up with has a long relationship with a Russian who is providing the CIA with information. And it goes downhill from there. So you, you speak French and German yourself. Do you speak any Russian also? No, I do not. Um, I was fortunate enough to be brought up in a family where my mom was Greek and my father was Czech, and we spoke English. <laughs> uh, so the language I, I learned were learned later on in life. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm linked friends with you on Facebook. We've got a lot of, you know, because we're in a similar background, a lot of linked, um, or, or, you know, familiar connections um, and I noticed the other day I went on to have a look at your profile and, and I spotted something that said tinkerer and breaker of fine mechanicals um, where you were a, a member of Orca the Orlando Club America uh, and that really uh, got my attention so can you tell us a little bit about that cars are also an interest uh, to me and that may or may not come from Ian Fleming and his signing James Bond of Bentley uh, but um, uh, certainly it came from the movies, but uh, I enjoy uh, British 
engineering, um, not necessarily because it's good, it is, but it's also challenging. Uh, my brother, when I was younger, my oldest brother had a Jaguar XKE uh, in the uh, 60s. He, he, had a, he had a 60s in E type. And one of the most interesting moments in my life was the day that I told him I was visiting him. I said, we need milk. And he threw me the keys with the Jag. I had never driven a Jag before. I barely knew how to drive a four-speed. And he threw the keys to me and said, well, go get it. So uh, here I'm driving this thing with a nose that's like 25 feet long. And that that was my introduction to British cars. So... Since then, I've I've wanted um, a an old Bentley, but they're too expensive. But um, I did buy a new Bentley, a newer Bentley, a 1950, 1949 actually, and rebuilt it to be a special. And I am currently working on another British car. You may have heard of it. It's kind of old. It's a 1919 uh, Silver Ghost. Oh, very nice. Yeah, the Rolls Royce Silver Ghost. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a challenge. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. Yeah, the uh, the Rolls Royce they've got their own specific tools. You can't you can't just use a standard Snap-on toolkit. They've got very uh, like customized tools to 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 yeah. Uh, what what a what an engineering challenge for you. Uh, well, yeah, because the Rolls Royce engineers are never convinced. Con- uh, content to have something built that's simple. Uh, they'd rather make it complicated so that it will last a hundred years but be the most frustrating piece of equipment that you've ever took, taken apart in your life. Oh, without doubt. Is, is Joshua Devlin your, your protagonist? Is, is he a version of yourself? How much of, of yourself is reflected in him? The characters in the book are versions of people I know, and some of them are composites, and Joshua has a bit, uh, yeah, I'll give you that, he has a bit of me, obviously I'm thinking for him, um, but uh, there's bits and pieces of other people in him too. Um, people I've worked with, people I've liked, people I've disliked, they all find their way into my book. And, and so how do, you, how do you tackle writing an action scene? Is that from experience, or something you've seen, or is it just from John Wayne, or like, what, how do you, how do you, how do you keep the suspense in the in such a part, you know? Alan, I wish I had the answer to that. Uh, every time I go into an action scene, I agonize over it, and I will go back and I will read, reread action scenes from everybody, from Robert Moss and. Joseph Cannon, um, Charles McCary, even Mick Heron. I mean, I look at these things and I say, well, that's an interesting way to handle it. Um, but uh, I end up just putting myself in the position of the two people or three people that might be involved in an action scene and how it would look to them from their point of view and how it would look from the opposition point of view and just try to build it that way. Um, I remember when when I was younger, um, when I first started playing sports, I was never really very good at it. Um, I was too light. I was not heavy enough to play football, and I was not good enough or tall enough to play basketball. But I remember when I first started playing, the plays, when they would come off, would be so fast and so complicated for my mind to follow that... that it was just something that I couldn't envision 
writing about later, trying to come up with saying everything that, that happened. But as I got older and as I got more experienced, and this, this was true in the military also, the more you practice, the more you do things, the time actually slows down when you're, when you're executing a specific maneuver or a specific operation. And I learned to be able to dissect that and see it again and sort of recount it on paper. And it just, it's, a lot of it's my experience uh, in those scenes and, and being able to look at it from different points of view. You should be like Gavin, just get out there and recreate it. You just get out there and do it. and then you. <laughs> well, I've done a few of those, too. Uh, no. I've, I've tested my theories. Um, there's one scene in the book where a guy has to get off uh, seven rounds. I believe it's seven rounds in less than ten seconds, but he's got three targets to shoot in three different directions. So I, re I redid that. I, I carried it out just as evil as possible. With the same weapon, the same magazines, same distances, and once I was convinced that I could do it, that I could put it in my book. Well, I like that. And, and violence, do you think about how you display violence in the book, or are you just kind of, are you free to put whatever, or do you kind of hold back some, or how do you, how do you deal with the violence? There's two, there's two things I hold back. Um, there's two things I hold back on. Um, one is violence, um, because I see no reason for you know, extremely explicit descriptions of everything that happens, nor do I think it's needed in the book. Um, and the other one is sex scenes, and that's because I don't know how to write them. Yeah. <laughs> Pick up some Harlequin romance there. and <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. Yeah, that's one area where experience does nothing for you, because if you try to write it, it yeah, uh, somebody is going to complain. I, I try to some extent, but uh, it never comes off as being as fluid and well executed on the paper as it should be. There are some people that can do it. Uh, and I'm not talking about Arlington romances. I'm talking about uh, some other authors, but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there yet. No, yeah, well, you don't have to be. And and so, how do you deal with the bad guys? So you got some evil, obviously, in a book, and especially the these types of fiction. So you got an evil character or characters, and and someone with bad intention and all that. How do you get into the head to write such bad people or awful people? How 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 do you get that way? I think a lot of people have said that even bad people can be good people at sometimes uh, at, at moments in their life. Um, again, it's a point of view. You look at them and say, okay, what is this person trying to accomplish and why? And then I, I always enjoy throwing in little tidbits that show them that they are human, you know, that they have a personality, not just this mad dog kind of person, mad dog, mad woman, mad whatever. Um, everybody has quirks, and I think quirks are kind of an interesting way to show a person's personality. So I, I try to plug those in for people. Now, there are a few guys that I really don't like, and I just try to kill them off as quickly as possible, and I, I don't give them much airtime at all. <laughs> Well, and with the evil people or the bad people, I guess you got to kind of show how they think that way or why they think that way. Kind of give more of a an idea so people can kind of understand 
what they're going for in a way. And, and yeah, I, I agree. And some people identify with uh, Blofeld and his fluffy white cat. So I mean, you don't want to hurt the cat. Uh, you might want to hurt Blofeld, but definitely not the cat. Yeah, don't don't touch the pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, what was that? I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and so that's so when you say you kill off the bad ones or some of the people you don't like as much as possible, do you ever kill off people that you know in real life? I mean, in your books, it's your people that you've met <laughs> that have inspired. Yeah, here's the confession. No, people <laughs> you've met uh, that have inspired characters in, in one of your books, but you've killed them off. Is that, is that ever, you ever come across that? Um, yes, um, there, there have been a couple, and I must say that my current, uh, the book I'm currently working on is going to have a few more, um, I'm taking a couple of cues from Hemingway, I think, that sometimes it's necessary to kill people off that you like, uh, just to make the story go forward, um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that, and some of them I knew pretty well, and and I really didn't like them, so it's okay. Now, how about some names and, and phone numbers? We'll get them yeah. on, the, on the line and talk to them. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think they may be able to figure out who they are when they read the book. <laughs> oh, there you go. See, Of course, if yeah. they see my name on it, they probably won't. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's just wrong. So when you set out to do one of these stories, like uh, in the fiction part for sure, do, do you ever have kind of a – a concept, like some sort of a subtext, a meaning, something you hope people take away from the book besides the action and, and all the other stuff going on in the book? I wouldn't say it's a, a big global theme. I rather like to put in personal motivations. Um, in that regard, I'm tending towards Le Carre and, and Graham Greene um, that... Um, some of the things that I have seen in life uh, kind of have uh, made an impression on me, and I like to have my characters kind of come upon that same impression in their own life and see how it affects them. What do you, what do you like writing better? Is it the nonfiction or the fiction? Fiction, fiction is more fun, but I think a well-written nonfiction book is more rewarding. Um, and... I've got right now four nonfiction. I'm working on a fifth one that should be coming out this summer. And when I see those, I think I like that a lot because there I said I made a contribution. You know, the storytelling is great, but when it comes time to remember the things that have happened uh, in the past, uh, military history or any kind of political history, uh, having an authentic history is very important. And so to be able to write one of those and make it readable, um, a good narrative history, uh, for me, means a great deal to me. So how do you think each book um, changes you? Like each time you complete a book and get it in and done and it gets launched, um, do you think it changes you as a person or even as a writer? Definitely as a writer, because my, my writing is evolving. Um, I started out with a lot of descriptions of persons, places, and things, and uh, it has evolved to less descriptions and more showing, which is one of the things you're supposed to do in a novel, is to tell and not to show. 
um, or show it, not tell, whichever, um, to, to actually let people try to get into the novel. And I'm getting better into that so that people can see what I'm writing and they don't have to interpret in, the, in their own minds. Um, I'm not sure it changes me so much other than the fact that my wife thinks I'm tied to the computer and spending too much time writing words. Um, so uh, at, at this point, it's... In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, it's an outlet for me, and it lets me tell stories that um, some of them in my, not, my fiction books are things that... Um, I probably could not say as uh, nonfiction, uh, so it allows me to tell those stories in a slightly altered fashion that I would like to tell, and that that for me is a, is an outlet that I really enjoy. Yeah. Did you always know you were going to be a writer? Like when you were young, did you think um, you'd be a writer and you were kind of writing a lot back then, or it, it, did it come along late for you? It, it came along late. I mean, I was 
Like I said, I've been toying with writing before, but I've never, never completed anything. And uh, it was only, only after I've written two nonfiction books uh, that I got the idea uh, to write fiction. Uh, and again, uh, that was primarily because of my run-in with the Pentagon. You know, it was. When, when the Pentagon takes 16 months to clear a book, which I can read in, in a week, um, it's, it's kind of frustrating and annoying. And fiction is a nice way to tell that story and, and to avoid uh, the frustration of dealing with the government. Was there much that you uh, had to remove from the pre-publication review, or, or was it, was it plain, pretty plain sailing? Uh, well, so not not a great deal a little bit um, some people had complaints um, it, the problem is is the Pentagon gets it and they say well you talk about this there so we have to send it to somebody and, that, and you talk about this here and we have to send it to somebody else so it's a very long and complicated process whereas if you write fiction you can say okay this is fiction nothing in here is true and the government can say oh it's fiction uh, therefore we don't care <laughs> and they still look <laughs> at it but it takes instead of a year it takes them a month so, uh, yeah. it's it's much more lucrative oh definitely yeah. this is how i bring some of my friends in and how 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 i write some of the stories that they probably would not want me to write if it was a, true story, but if it's a fiction story, it's not so bad. So what gave you the courage to actually go ahead and try and publish a book? If I go back to the first book I wrote, um, I was in southern Africa, and I was trying to research what had happened uh, during World War One in the country I was at. I was in Namibia. And for the life of me, I couldn't find much information. I could find the information about what the Germans had done, uh, their own history. And I had found a history of what the, the British and the South Africans had done. But there wasn't a compilation that you know, told the story from both sides at the same time in the same book. And so I said, well, let's, uh, let's try to put together something and see where it goes. And then I was extremely fortunate. I queried a guy in the UK, a small press company, a small publisher, and they came back to my surprise very quickly and said, yeah, we'll take it on. Um, and then my next book, they said, which was the book that was about special forces in Berlin, they said, well, that's a bit beyond us, but I know somebody who might be interested. Uh, and they took it. So I've been extremely fortunate in, in the fact that I've been picked up by publishers. I know a lot of people will go for years and work with agents and you know, get rejected by all kinds of people. But like I said, I, I've been very lucky in the company that I was working with for a long time. I'm still working with a, a nonfiction. Basically, says if you write it and it makes sense, we'll publish it. So um, I try to find good stories, stories that interest me. If if it doesn't interest me or if I don't know enough about it, I can't write it. Uh, I just have a mental block. But I can write about stories that interest me. You know, it's a very judgmental world out there. So I always kind of you know, especially nowadays with you know the internet and you know all the social media and. Amazon and stuff, so people can be very judgmental, mean and and good at the same time. And Absolutely. I was just wondering, yeah. So, so to take that's why I say take courage, because you're actually 
in a way, you're exposing some of who you are into these books, and you put it out there, and then someone can say, oh, you know, this guy's awful and stuff. Are, are, do, you, do you pay attention to any of that, any of the noise from the Internet or the Amazon or reviews or any of that? Uh, that's a very good question because I, uh, I am still learning. Uh, my wife, my office is upstairs, and my wife will be downstairs, and I'll come storming down the stairways, and she, she can tell from the look on my face when I've got a bad review or something. And she she has worked with me well. Um, you just have to learn to live with it. Uh, some people have a motive for what they write, uh, either good or bad, and you just have to live with that. Um, you know, if you put your stuff out on the street, you know, some people are going to say it's good, and some people are going to say bad. It, does, it doesn't matter. Um, so I, I'm learning to live with it, but it's it's been a journey, I, I tell you. Um, what I didn't know about book publishing was it's actually the easiest part is writing the book. No matter how hard it is, it's the easiest part, because then you have to go for the publishing you have to go, for, in some people's case, you have to go for the pre-publication clearance from the government. Uh, I think it's the same way for the people that work for some of the organizations in the UK. Um, so that's that's a little bit more difficult, going through the editing process and everything else. Then you come up to the fact, the point where you're actually publishing the book, and publishers do not do a great deal of promotion anymore, uh, unless you're with one of the big fives. Um, so if you publish a book, you have to be prepared to go on the social media and talk about it, talk about yourself, talk about your motivations and all the questions that you've been asking, and you try to do the best you can to promote not only your book, but your reason for writing it and what the book is about. Um, and you have to expect that out of every ten people that, that are exposed to the book, two of them are going to care, maybe more. Uh, and at least probably 20% are going to finish it and say, oh, I've read better. So uh, you just have to deal with that. Yeah. I always just hunt them down and, and take them out. <laughs> well, that is, that is an option, but uh, you know, I, you know, I, I don't... I'd rather they buy it and say it was bad than, than not buy it and not hear from them. So. Well, you know, I think I think a lot of it is noise. You know, it's just out there. If you focus on it too much, it takes you away from your writing and what's really important in your life. I mean, it's kind of a one of those things, you know. And and a lot of I, I you know, and a lot of the reviews too. A lot of people that say things, they say it. It's how their day is or how they perceive something and how they feel when they're reading the book maybe they're in a bad mood or a bad way and so they sort of give it a bad review so you kind of got to just say i i ignore all of mine you know what i really what i really dislike is when uh, on amazon or other places when they put up one star and then they don't say a word <laughs> yeah uh, okay, you didn't like it. Why didn't you like it? You know, at least, you know, give me a chance to uh, to work on it and improve. You know, find a way around it. You know, maybe I can write something you would like, or maybe I can direct you to somebody that you might like better. Who knows? But uh, don't don't write a review and don't put anything. <laughs> yeah, just ignore that. You'll never win on that because you, yeah, you see, then you I start don't. focusing on that. You know, it's just people like Gavin 
tournament. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to take out the competition so he gives everyone a one star. That's a, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go on uh, Goodreads and start putting up stuff about all Gavin's books. Uh, I'll remind yeah. you yeah, anything well, I put up. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> one star. <laughs> Fake. One star. <laughs> so. He sounds like he's from Alabama, not the UK. Yeah, no, <laughs> nobody believes me. So, so um, how, how did you get on with? Because I mean, we both worked in the industry, and we both know what it's like to do something like a you know three, four, five hour SDR, um, and 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 kind of how for us that can be so laborious and so time consuming and sometimes very boring. Um, so, so to put something like that into into a spy novel, how are you coping? And it doesn't have to be an SDR; it could be any of the trade craft. How are you, how are you coping with kind of keeping that kind of uh, the, the the reader's attention and condensing that? That's uh, that's an interesting question too, Gavin. That's one I've struggled with. Not necessarily struggled with, but uh, I've found different ways to handle it. And um, if you read one of my early books, I'm kind of laborious uh, about describing uh, an SDR or something like that. No, I will take you through almost, not, not street by street, but, but fairly long. And I've gotten, I've gotten, I've changed my way with that, and, and I've come up with ways to describe highlights of, of a surveillance run and compact them. So when a 12-hour surveillance run might come down to one page or two pages in the book, um, and I've just I've just had to look for different ways to describe it that will will make people feel like they've been on a 12-hour run, and hopefully they won't be as tired and pissed off, but uh, they will understand <laughs> what's involved and, and realize. Because actually, you know, when I when I've done SDRs and I've done them in the States for training and everywhere else. Um, you know, when you're doing it in the States, it's a chore because, okay, you know, you got somebody watching you and evaluating you and you're out there looking for them. But when you do it for real overseas, even in the States, if you're doing it for real, um, it takes on a whole different complexity and a whole different vibe. Um, then you're saying it's almost like a game at that point. And, uh, not not a game in something that you're just playing at, but a game where you have to win. Um, yeah. You, you have to know when to commit and when to not commit, when to go ahead or when to abort. And if you can put those things down on paper, then I think the essence of what you experience is there. And that's, that's what I try to achieve. It's a lot of the stuff you've learned in, let's say, CIA, uh, still with you today, like, you know, the awareness of your surroundings and what's around. Do you still kind of do the same sort of behaviors you did when you were working for the agency? My favorite phrase, Alan, is just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in today's world, I mean, when I travel overseas, um, if I'm going to what we euphemistically used to call third world countries, um, then, yeah, all that stuff comes into play. Uh, the kind of things you wear, the kind of things you take with you, how you act on the street. Um, and then when I go downtown here, even even in Washington, D.C., it, it, it's the same thing. If you've got your face buried in a 
telephone or an iPad or whatever, you don't know what's going on around you. Uh, so the things that I've learned over the years uh, apply in civilian life just, just as equally as they do when you're on the job. Well, now let's talk about uh, websites, social media, and all that. Where can readers find James? I was just going to say on the Internet, but that would be a little too <laughs> flippant. But, uh, uh, if you Google my name, um, I'm on... Oh, I do have a website. It's not a real good one. Uh, it's basically just a, a WordPress um, website. Uh, it does have some of my older articles, some of my military history, and it describes my novels. I'm up on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, and I'm on that new thing called X, which is the old thing called Twitter. This is the great thing. If, you, if you're a member of the Big Five, you probably have somebody at one of those big publishing houses that is uh, pretending to be you uh, and putting out stuff on all these organizations, uh, on all these websites or social media things. But if, you, if you're an independent author, like many, many are nowadays, you have to do all this stuff yourself, uh, so you do the best you can. So I, I put up, um, I put up updates about my books on on social media, like I said, Facebook and X um, and uh, Instagram. Um, so the best way to look for me is use my name and stuff it in Google or whatever search engine you're using, and you'll come up with something. Well, of course, we'll have all that up on our website so people can find you easily. You know? Oh, so I just went through all that to explain it. Now you tell me that. <laughs> yeah, of course. You see, that's what I do. That's what, oh, okay. You know, yeah. That's, all that's right. what I do. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No problem. That's my job. You see, that's what <laughs> I, I do my job. And use use the name Gavin Stone. That would be a great spy name. <laughs> Sounds rough. Yeah, you know, that's a good idea, Gavin. Because there's a guy in one of my books whose name actually was Gavin. Um, does he get killed? I, had, I, yeah, changed, he... <laughs> I changed his name so he wouldn't get mad at me, but now that you've offered up yours, I'm, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, and he, you probably killed him off. So there you go. Yeah, so there you go. You, you, later tonight you can kill me. How about that? No, yeah. I, no, I, I, I think he ended up looking for a $5 bill in, in an outhouse. We told him the wallet got dropped in, and he went went looking for it, and he never came back. Uh, yeah. Oh, boy, you got him down. You already got the character. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Uh, I'll, come up, I'll come up with a better demise for you, Gavin. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, we appreciate you being on the show there, you know, and, uh, of course, your latest book is called Dead Hand, and uh, our guest has been the author of that book and several others, will, you know, like I said, go to our website. James, stay school. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Ellen and Gavin, and we'll see you down the road. I think we ought to tip a, a scotch or something together somewhere. Sounds good to me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the production of something weird media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.